Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Carol Masser, along with Manus Cranny and Katie Greifeld. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance on demand at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and of course, on the Bloomberg Business app. Bitcoin is more than doubled this year on hopes that the SEC will approve that holy grail, the spot Bitcoin ETF in the coming weeks. We're waiting Bated breath. We are all waiting, and so is Kathy Wood, and she joins us on this Thursday. Kathy Wood, of course, founder, CEO, and CIO of ARK Invest. Um, Kathy, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. So great to have you here. Um, let's start there with the news, because we do have this story on the Bloomberg. Tell, tell us a little bit about this overhaul and your thinking when it comes to how you are um, thinking about the investment strategy for you guys specifically when it comes to crypto. Sure. And uh, Merry Christmas. Very happy to be here again, Carol, Katie, and Massive. Uh, so we're, uh, we're as optimistic about uh, Bitcoin as we ever have been. Um, but there, were, there are a few regulatory and tax uncertainties. Uh, and uh, we had been waiting for the discount uh, between uh, GBTC and NAV to, to narrow. It was as high as 50% at one point last year when there was great uncertainty around all of the turmoil in crypto generally. And now it's a single digit. Uh, and there are now other products out there that uh, we can use to gain exposure to Bitcoin in this moment. And it's just a moment of uncertainty between now, we think, and um, January, January 8th to 10th, somewhere in that range, perhaps. Uh, but we, out of an abundance of caution, didn't want to take any risk. Mm -hmm. And I mean, let's get a little bit specific here because we're talking about the ARK Next Generation Internet ETF. The ticker there is ARK W. And I think what caught a lot of people's attentions is that you uh, completely sold down your remaining stake of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Instead, on the same day, uh, you bought into the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF. Of course, that tracks uh, Bitcoin futures. It doesn't actually hold the physical Bitcoin. Can you explain that shuffle? What was the thinking there? Sure. Um, a couple of things. First of all, um, BIDO, the ProShares, is already approved. There's no regulatory uncertainty having to do with it. Uh, uh, so we chose to maintain our exposure through BIDO uh, for the time being. 
And uh, as I mentioned before, there are some uh, tax and regulatory uncertainties still as part of this process. Uh, we don't know exactly who's going to be approved and uh, and whether they've met all the uh, criteria that the SEC has put before us. Uh, we know we have, uh, but uh, we don't know if others, including GBTC, have. We just we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so again, out of an abundance of caution, and GBT's discount again, it was as much as fifty percent relative to NAV. So not only have we enjoyed this year the run in bitcoin itself but we've had the nice closing of that discount so it's been uh you know double good news for us but you've talked about january 10th kathy i think in another report is that possible whether it's you or somebody else in terms of the first um spot bitcoin etf actually getting approval uh, well, we think the probabilities have gone up because the SEC has been highly engaged compared to what was happening before. Before, it was just denying approval, denying approval. Uh, and we just kept putting our uh, filing in again, you know, trying, <laughs> try, 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 you know, yeah. dogged and determined. And uh, so here we are. We think we're we're first in line, and that's why there is this uh, January 10th deadline. Um, but we like the idea that the SEC has been so engaged, and it's not just with us; it's others as well. We think a number of uh, uh, a number of funds could be approved at the same time, uh, and they've been asking not only one set of questions but follow-up questions. And uh, again, that's a very good sign. Well, speaking of and, engaged, oh, go ahead, please. No, no, no. Yeah, finish. the last few questions have been very technical, mm. and uh, uh, and so more de rigueur, and you know, you'd expect them to be asking these questions as we head toward an approval. Now, it's not one hundred percent certain, and uh, so we want to make that clear as well. Um, this is the SEC, and uh, we never know, you know, what might happen along the way. Regulators can be tricky, that's for sure. Hey, listen, you mentioned engagement. Let's talk about engagement with your funds overall, and especially the ARK Innovation Fund, up 72% year-to-date, easily outperforming uh, some of the major uh, market benchmarks, still down 65% from the high back in February of 2021. For you, though, a lot of critics. We bring up your name, we bring up ARC, and you have a lot of fans and you have a lot of critics. There's a lot of discussion. Does it feel, though, a little bit like a victory lap this year? Uh, well, you know, we are very happy that a couple of things have happened. Uh, that this idea that interest rates were going to continue moving higher uh, has been proven incorrect. And uh, I think even the Fed while there is that small possibility, even the Fed is now starting to talk about the other side of the interest rate move. And so I, I do believe all we've seen so far is a reaction to that macro phenomenon or, or judgment call. Um, we went through our, our uh, flagship strategy and all of our strategies went through a very difficult time from February 21 through December of 22 as interest rates, first of all, were presumed uh, to move up or forecasted Mm -hmm. to move up. 
And then when they did move up, so it was almost like a double discounting. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen the first installment of um, the the uh, the correction there to the upside for our funds uh, with this notion. And it's again the forecast that interest rates will come down. And you know we we would presume that if they do come down, uh, for the reasons we think they're going to come down, the most important one being deflation, then our funds will uh, be in good shape because we are very, uh, our, our companies uh, thrive on deflation. Technologically enabled innovation is deflationary. So Kathy, a very good morning to you. It's Manus, first time we, we've met on. Uh, so we're going to move to a deflationary environment. We'll come back to the big macro call in a moment. Just let's square it away before I talk to you about the flows in the funds, which is how much interest rate cuts do you presume are you forecasting? Leave the forecast of everybody else aside. We'll what do, you, what do you presume will happen next year? Well, we put up a chart uh, in one of our in the in the nose, which is a, a YouTube video that I do every every month, Employment Friday. And in that chart, you will find uh, 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 a ratio. It's the metals uh, to gold ratio. Mm -hmm. So metals price to gold price. Uh, and there has been an extremely tight correlation between that ratio and long-term interest rates. In October, we, we published it, or early November, mm -hmm. and what you will see is that there was a very wide gap that had developed. The metals-to-gold ratio was near its low for the past 12, 15 years. And interest rates were at their highs, uh, 5%. The correlation, if you just eyeballed that chart, the correlation suggested that rates should go to 2%. Now, maybe they won't go all the way to 2%, but we think that long-term interest rates are way above where they're going to okay. end up because of deflation. Okay, yes. well, let's, we'll come back to that and see whether we get to the 2% level. I've got to ask you about the flows into the funds, which is... Obviously, you know, as Carol just said, you, you've got a bit of a victory lap going on at the moment, but this is the first year of outflows. Um, have those outflows stopped? You've had a great performance in the back part of this year. Have the outflows stopped? Um, and has that bleed stopped? Yes, well, we were very gratified at our asset retention in 21 and 22. Um, in fact, we had net inflows, if you combine both years, of more than $18 billion. Uh, and this year, uh, one might expect uh, that those who averaged down into the, the very steep declines that we were seeing in 22 especially, uh, might take some profit. So we have had... Uh, I know for our flagship strategy, it's um, roughly $500 million in outflows. Maybe for all of our strategies, $1.8 million. So maybe 10% of the inflows that we enjoyed during 21 and 22. So again, we're very gratified and grateful to our, our clients for uh, the support that we continue to receive. So has the, has the outflow stopped? Uh, we have had uh, days of, on balance, very recently, yes. Uh, and I think part of this is many people do uh, uh, 
tax management toward the end of the year. And so some of the outflows might have been associated with uh, uh, with uh, clients who um, got in at a high cost base and were just harvesting okay. some tax losses. But I think we're through that. Is, do you find it a little surprising, though, Kathy, considering the run up or do you I'm curious about the conversations you do have with investors considering the year that you're having and then to see those flows. It's got to be a yes, little disheartening. You know, yeah. Oh, no, 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 not at all. Actually, we put out a piece for uh, Resolute, our distributor, who um, and and we basically showed to, uh, them if you rebalance our strategy when there have been big moves one way or the other, if you rebalance regularly or based on a rule like uh, when when the funds up 15 percent relative to everything else, take some profits. And what uh, it showed, that study showed that if you are disciplined that way, that um, over any rolling five year uh, period, um, it is highly likely, uh, almost 100 uh, percent. I'm not quite sure if it's quite that high, but uh, that uh, uh, that you will beat the market, uh, meaning as measured by the Nasdaq or the S&P over a rolling five year period. And so uh, a lot of our funds are with advisors who are very sophisticated and uh, responded somewhat, perhaps in this tax, tax management uh, part of the year to that message. Kathy Wood, founder, CEO and CIO of ARK Invest. She's joining uh, Manus, of course, and Katie and myself here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Um, Kathy, I feel like we can't talk, we have to talk about Tesla and Elon Musk. And I know you just had a conversation on Twitter X. Um, this has been, I think from day one, right? In terms of you starting out that you've had this investment in Tesla. And I remember when we first talked and you were getting started, you talked about him being the next Thomas Edison and how his vehicles would turn the U.S. economy upside down. Um, having said that, there's an evolution and the EV world has changed. How are you thinking? It's still a top holding. How are you thinking about the Tesla story right now? Well, um, first of all, Carol, thank you very much for letting me interview that time. That was nearly 10 years ago. Arquette is about to celebrate his 10th year anniversary, and you gave us that opportunity. So thank you. Um, uh, the world is evolving, actually, um, uh, I think, even m more closely to what we expected uh, because we expected a lot of traditional auto manufacturers to see the writing on the wall and rush as quickly as they could into scaling big time into electric vehicles. And what has happened recently? Both GM and Ford have said, uh, we're stepping back. Uh, we're not going to do this until uh, it's profitable. The problem with that is in order to be profitable, they need to scale. That's how this works. These are learning curves that they are uh, riding down, and those are expressed in cost declines. So the fact that they're pulling back means they're more sh there's more share for Tesla and others who choose to go for it. Mm. And uh, Kathy, I want to keep the conversation going on Elon Musk, but I want to bring it to the ARK Venture Fund. Of course, uh, it's not an ETF. You invest in private companies, et cetera, in there. And you take a look at the portfolio. You have SpaceX in there, and you also have X, formerly known as Twitter. Mm -hmm. And in July, you had told the Wall Street Journal that you had written down your Twitter stake by 47%. Fill us in on the past couple of months. Have you written it down further, or how has that changed? No, I think it's uh, still there. Um, 
You know, uh, we have to be very careful. This is an interval fund. It is a 40 act fund and we have to mark to market every day. Uh, the good news is our clients can get in and have access to these amazing companies for just $500 and they get quarterly liquidity. So, so that's the good news. The markdowns are simply, you know, if we see in the secondary market employee stock trading at a steep discount, we have to take that into account. If we see others in the more traditional asset management work, world, like uh, Fidelity and others uh, marking their holdings down, uh, we need to take that into consideration during our daily mark to market. So it's an abundance of caution. We have a five-year investment time horizon. Do mm -hmm. we think that's where... X belongs in terms of valuations? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. A roughly 20-ish billion dollar uh, valuation for what we believe truly will become uh, the everything app. Think WeChat Pay. Uh, Elon started his entrepreneurial career in the payments industry, and he's been thinking about this for a long time. He now has money transmitter licenses in more than half of all of the states, mm -hmm. uh, which we learned on Twitter Spaces or on X Spaces, I should say, uh, the other day when we had our interview with him. So that's exciting. He's going for it. He's going for it. Uh, we'll see if that one lands. But let's talk a little bit more about the private markets, because obviously the private credit market has gotten a lot of attention right now. You're looking at the private markets through this interval fund that you have. When you think about the opportunities there on that five year horizon that you have, do you see more so in the public markets or in the private markets right now? Uh, well, uh, now that we've had this very nice run this year, um, we think the answer to that question is in the private markets. They're close. They're close. What's fascinating to us is that the public markets have been leading the private markets for the past three years as our funds were uh, were falling in 21 uh, private evaluations were going to all-time highs along with the NASDAQ. They were taking their cues, I suppose, from the NASDAQ. But real innovation, if you looked at our portfolios, uh, was starting to um, revalue to the downside, and even more so in 2022. We are still seeing major down rounds taking place in the private markets. And I'm always surprised at, at this sort of thing because you would think that the private markets lead the public markets. That has not been the case in the last few years. Hey, Kathy, I've got to be honest with you. I think whenever we think about Elon Musk, brilliant, but also erratic. And I'm curious how you think about Elon, the individuals versus Elon, the companies he's creating, the things he's doing. Because I think if there is time, any other CEO of a major publicly held company would, I think it's safe to say, not be able to get away with a lot of what he has done. So help us educate us how you make sense of it, of someone you have followed, talked with for many years. Well, first of all, uh, very often we just look at what he does, not exactly what he's saying, which can often be a distraction, or it can be an advertisement for his cars or for X or, or for SpaceX uh, and so forth. So um, but we have a, a scoring system um, as we are evaluating companies and their founders and their management teams. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there are six metrics, and one of them is moat and barriers to entry. 
And mm-hmm. uh, I think Elon is a maestro of raising barriers to entry with innovation, which that is so much faster than anyone else. Why? Because he's so first principles, physics driven in his uh, analysis of how to approach a new idea, a so, big idea. So tell me this then, Kathy. I mean, if you look at the cohort of, yours, of, of the CEOs that you back, Brian Armstrong, does he hit that bar? Does he, does, is he above Elon or is he at the money? You've got Elon, you've got Brian, you've got uh, Tony Wood at Roku. Um, does anybody come close to Elon or is Brian Armstrong maybe even at the money with, with, with Elon or above? Well, uh, we don't actually look at uh, the world that way, one relative to the other in terms of management teams. We do look from our scoring system at the scores, which include moat, management, people and culture, execution, valuation, that might surprise people, and uh, product and service leadership and thesis risk. Those are the six scores. And uh, both, but, but well, all three of them score very highly. Which one scores the highest? I, they're actually very close to one another, to be honest. They're very close to one another. So, I mean, obviously, Coinbase uh, is one of your, your key holdings. We've talked a little bit about that. The, the, other, the other feature that we want to talk about is AI. Um, I'm curious to know, in OpenAI, uh, the valuations have ranged between $80 billion to $100 billion. Will you take a position in OpenAI? Is that going to be part of your holdings as you explore the next development of AI in your holdings? Well, um, in our uh, private portfolios, we uh, are already exposed to Anthropic, which has been a major beneficiary of the drama around OpenAI that uh, we all witnessed uh, a few months ago. Um, But if you look at GPT-4, which is uh, the latest large language model that that OpenAI has published, it is uh, way above others in terms of performance. So there you have it, the the pros and the cons. Mm -hmm. Um, So we can't tell you what we're going to do in that portfolio, but uh, we are so impressed at how OpenAI has led the industry. We're also impressed, however, at the open source models. And and we'd like to encourage more of that movement. Uh, we know that Meta Platforms has, has with Llama 2, and uh, it's working on others, is moving very quickly and uh, making great strides. So for much lower cost, uh, open source is free, uh, companies can get Close, not 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 yeah. uh, right at GPT four, but close. So we want to see the open source movement in in the venture fund. We also own um, Kathy. We've got a. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. We we never have enough time with you. Can I ask you a really quick question? Five seconds. Sure. Any sure, new sure. ETFs coming our way from you guys next year? Well, uh, real quickly. Uh, as you may know, we bought a company in London. Yeah. Uh, they have some very interesting funds. <laughs> all right. Going to leave it there. Like we said, we always leave uh, our audience wanting more from you, but we so appreciate all the time you gave us. Happy New Year, of course. Kathy Wood, founder, CEO, CIO of ARK Investment. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. 
Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's see what Lara Rame has to say. She's chief U.S. economist at FS Investments, joining us on this Thursday. Lara, great to have you here with the team. So let's go to jobless claims, first of all. Is that significant in terms of that uptick? So this one month of readings is not significant, but this indicator to me is one of my most watched um, indicators. The fact that it's been low, really, Carol, uninterruptedly uh, for months and months now, to me says that while there are concerns about you know, the labor market renormalizing or people are starting to talk about cracks in the labor market. When I look at this indicator, I see companies still really eager to hold on to workers. They may be taking more time to rehire if somebody's lost. They may be, uh, you know, a little more um, rational about job openings. But when it comes to layoffs, companies are very closely guarding their workers. And I think that has big implications it has had throughout this last year Mm -hmm. and going into next year means that it's one of the reasons why the economy has been a lot stronger than a lot of us expected. So the labor hoarding continues. I want to ask you about Jomo replacing (laughs) FOMO. What exactly are we talking about? (laughs) I, my idea for the coming year is, is that, you know, the business cycle lives and dies around the consumer and the consumer has just been surprising with uh, spending strength throughout this expansion. That is still a very young expansion. The FOMO, you know, we have to, now's the time to spend, we've put it off. We have to go uh, take the trip, buy the car, whatever (laughs) it is, we're gonna find a way to do it. That is gonna be replaced by a more moderate sort of Jomo joy of missing out. It's just a way of saying that people may choose to have more staycations they may start to be a little more budget conscious. That's not to say that household budgets are in trouble, but we know that credit card debt is high now and interest rates on credit cards are, unlike home mortgages, they're not fixed, right? They are moving up fast. So it's this idea that over the next year, we're still gonna have a healthy consumer. We have a healthy jobs market. We are not going to get the consumer in contraction, but you're going to have a consumer that's maybe a little more moderate, and maybe decides that they can wait a little bit or defer some joy instead of taking it all right now. I think we have a new T-shirt and hat and uh, coat Jomo. series to make it. Jomo weaponized. weaponized FOMO. This now was our guest Jomo. the other day, by the way, Lara. Our <laughs> guest the other day said that we all had weaponized. Uh, or, or we have weaponized FOMO, but now you've christened a new one, Jomo. 
I love it. <laughs> it's almost like the, it, it can be a, a boy band or or or, or, a, or, a, or a band of a band of many. Um, I want to know. Catch on by mid year. You won't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are in the camp of uncomfortably high inflation in 2024. Now, does that just mean we get stuck where we are? Because the disinflation has been really quite, uh, quite aggressive, one could say. Uh, but you say we're going to get persistently high inflation. What is that going to do? Is that going to mar the, the sort of the clarion call for, for multi-rate cuts of 150 basis points in the U.S.? I think I think we do get stuck where we are. And I would argue that where we are is uncomfortably high. And I think it does three big things. The first one is that it keeps this wet blanket on consumer sentiment. You know, we've seen this trend of households spending a lot, but also in surveys being very downbeat about the economy. I think that gap has to close. And I think it closes more towards spending decelerating and part of that is the inflation picture and partly the housing affordability picture, too. The second thing it does is give the Fed less room to maneuver. Mm. I don't think that, uh, you know, six rate hikes in a non-recessionary economy is a likely outcome. Mm. I could see them strategically trying to cut rates. But the reality is that with inflation where it is today, it's very hard for me to see them just making the deep sort of programmatic costs that they do when we're seeing a recession. And the third thing it does is really challenge fixed income investors. Mm -hmm. I think everybody looks at, you know, the two year, four and a quarter. They think that this is a, you know, it is a a multi-decade highs, right? Um, It seems like a very good investment. When you think about inflation at 4% versus 2%, your real return is much smaller than you'd think. Should we be talking about the possibility of another rate hike here? You mentioned that against this sticky inflation backdrop, six rate cuts maybe looks unrealistic. Is there a possibility that the Fed has to hike rates again in 2024? You know, I was one of the last holdouts saying that they would raise rates in the fourth quarter. Obviously, that didn't happen. I think from here, their messaging has really changed. They've talked about um, rate cuts being not an if, but a when. So... Uh, the more likely scenario to me is if data really surprises the upside or we get, you know, inflation data that really harms their, um, you know, goals to cut rates, they would instead just hold rates steady here. Mm. I think it's important to hearken back to the mid-90s. And this is something that I really cover a lot in my outlook for next year. Over 40 years, we do not have a good roadmap for non-recessionary rate cut scenarios yeah and Mm. the mid 90s is one of the only episodes they cut three times over eight months and then they waited almost a year and they raised again Mm -hmm. so we have to be really i think careful we just do not have a good roadmap history is never a perfect guide but in this case we are really i would say in much more uncharted territory than markets believe today Flying blind uh, to some extent there. So clearly a communication challenge for the Fed. Let's talk about uh, the balance sheet, though, because that's one of the big questions. And uh, Pal did get asked about this at this month's meeting. What happens to the balance sheet if they do try to do those sort of fine tuning rate cuts and uh, continue to roll off the balance sheet to on the uh, you know, from an, the outside looking in that appears that the Fed is working at cross purposes. How are you thinking about the balance sheet in relation to their primary tool of interest? interest rates. I I think you bring up an important point, which is 
again, speaks to the unique nature of of easing monetary policy when we don't have a recession. It looks really different. And I think, first of all, the Fed would like to get out of the balance sheet manipulation game. I don't think it's a place where they're, they've been comfortable. So I think to the best extent that they can, they'd like to de-emphasize that as a policy tool. And I think that's what they're trying to do right now. But I also look at the broader Treasury landscape because over the coming year, we need to roll to almost 10 trillion, $9.7 trillion of Treasury debt that matures within the next 12 months. Three years ago, that was only 5 trillion. So when I look at long-term interest rates, my expectation is that we will continue to hold or this drift up pattern throughout the next year, sort of holding the same 350 to 5% range that we held this last year. And the reason for that is because you know, we think about the yield curve today, deeply inverted, but if we do get a soft landing, that will probably correct at some point through yeah. some rate cuts, but also some drift higher in long-term interest rates. Lara, it's a very different outlook. 20 seconds, really quickly. Are you ruling out a recession for the U.S. next year completely? I, I'm not completely ruling out a recession, Carol. I think so many of us tripped on the landmine and now feel a little bit shy to come out and talk about uh, a recession next year, I think the risks are still elevated. We need to look at traditional bank lending. We need to look at the lagged effects of higher interest rates. My forecast, though, is for slower growth, not a recession. All right. On that note, we're going to say Happy New Year. Uh, Lara, always appreciate uh, all the time you give Bloomberg. Lara Rame, of course, of FS Investments. Mona Mahajan is standing by senior investment strategist over at Edward Jones. A very good morning to you. The Nasdaq's up 55%. The S&P uh, is desperately trying to make a new record high. Um, do you think we're going to shift uh, a little bit more aggressively into the new year to a, a full bull mode? Or will there be you know, a bit of pulling back once Powell and the other Fed members get to, into jawboning mode in January? Good morning. Yes. Uh, thanks, Manis. And certainly you've brought up probably one of the key points that we've been thinking about in recent weeks. Now, look, certainly this has been a phenomenal probably eight weeks or so for the S&P 500. And you have to kind of uh, you can't ignore the fact that the nature of this rally has shifted a bit. You know, we were we started the year really driven by that magnificent seven, a large cap technology trade. And over the last few weeks, we have seen a broadening of participation, whether it's value cyclical parts of the market, whether it's small and mid cap parts of the market, whether it's bond markets all of which have played some catch up in recent weeks. Uh, we think that's a healthy sign. Certainly a lot of ingredients came together uh, to kind of drive this rally forward. And that included not only inflation moving lower, but a Fed that told us they're likely to pivot next year. And of course, bond markets and bond yields that moved substantially lower. Now, to your point, as we head into the new year, one, we know markets can't move up in a straight line indefinitely. Uh, and two, you know, you give the markets an inch. Fed talked about three rate cuts. They take a mile. Markets are now pricing in about six rate cuts for next year. So we do think as we head into the new year, there could be some sparks and bouts of volatility, especially as uh, the markets and Fed, Fed go head to head on this. And we do think the Fed will push back. Uh, keep in mind, the first Fed meeting is January 31st. There will be speakers between now and then as well. We think they do take that opportunity to push back on the six rate cuts that have been priced into the market. Our view is we probably still get three to four rate cuts next year, um, but they don't start until later in the year, especially as the Fed does want to see that core inflation number move lower from 4% 
to probably sub 3%. A lot can happen in a month uh, before that first Fed meeting. Having said that, I do wonder, Mona, how we've been spending so much time this week. It's kind of quieted down, but we've been watching very much what's going on geopolitically. How does that potentially complicate what the Fed needs to do here? Yeah, you know, look, it's it's been an interesting year in geopolitics, um, and certainly one way that that has manifested is through the oil and energy markets. And certainly when the uh, Israeli-Gaza conflict first hit, we saw an immediate move higher in oil prices. Um, and we've seen since then a real cooling in oil and energy. And perhaps a part of the reason is one, those players alone are not substantial oil producers. Um, but two, maybe there was this hope building that the conflict would not escalate. And so we did see uh, an easing in oil and energy prices. Now, that is probably the closest uh, asset class we're watching as geopolitics unfolds in 2024. Um, our hope is that the direction of travel does continue to go towards de-escalation rather than re-escalation. Uh, and that would be positive uh, for stability in the oil and energy markets. So it's something we're watching closely. Certainly, the Fed will be watching it from an inflationary perspective especially as oil and energy plays a you know, key component of, of headline inflation. Um, but you know, as we think about volatility heading mm -hmm. into the new year, um, for those investors that hadn't quite participated in this last few weeks, we would say any volatility really provides an opportunity uh, for investors to get involved and position for potentially a continuation of this broadening of market participation. Also important to the economy is, of course, what the consumer does ultimately. We still see a relatively tight labor market. Um, having said that, we got a read on weekly jobless, a little bit of an uptick, uh, certainly in today's. But we talked with Lara Rame earlier, who talked about companies still holding on to their workers. They want to do that. Can the consumer, as we talked earlier, the, moving from FOMO, fear of moving out, to JOMO, <laughs> joy of missing out, maybe they've got bills to pay and they're going to hold back. Can the consumer continue spending in the new year? Yeah, it's a critical question. And I, I did hear the Jomo phrase and I loved it. <laughs> um, you know, we uh, we also are in the camp that the consumer is facing some headwinds heading into the new year. And, and you know, keep in mind, uh, we are coming from a very strong you know, position of strength from Q3 of this year, where GDP growth was 5% nearly and consumption was 4% uh, roughly. And so from that high level, do we think there could be a potential for a slowdown? Yes. Um, keep in mind, for the consumer, excess savings have been worked down. We are seeing still elevated interest rates, mortgage rates, you know, despite the recent cooling. And of course, bank lending standards remain tight. Credit card debt, as we know, is moving higher. And we're seeing some early signs of uh, delinquencies as well. So all that being said, some challenges facing the consumer as we're heading into the new year. But we know the U.S. consumer likes to spend and does you know, does and can remain resilient in the face of some challenges. The U.S. So consumer will view, spend right to the very end. The yeah. last the last consumer to put their credit card away. Hard to bet against the uh, U.S. consumer. Yeah. But I want to bring this conversation back to the markets because you mentioned participation. And uh, something that we've been talking about all week is that $6 trillion that's sitting in money market funds right now. And many a bull case has been built on the idea that basically you'll see that cash come out of money market funds and venture into risk assets, venture into equities and fixed income. Is that your view as well or maybe a little bit of caution around that one? Yeah, you know, we do think that um, part of the, the money that has flown, and it's been a tremendous inflow, and you mentioned the $6 trillion figure into CDs and money markets. We think some of that money now is starting, you know, as CD money comes due, um, 
as investors are thinking about reinvestment risk, we think there is a case to be made that the money that maybe would have flown into your CD and money markets will now start to flow into more traditional asset classes like equities and bonds. Um, and certainly there's a couple of reasons for that. One, of course, as the Fed is potentially uh, embarking on a, a rate cutting path, we will have reinvestment risk. Two, there is an opportunity cost to sitting in cash. And hopefully uh, investors are starting to see with the S&P up 25 percent. But even the bond market um, rallying you know, close to 5 percent in recent weeks uh, gives you a run for your money for traditional cash assets. And then thirdly, you know, over time, over any 30 year period, we have seen uh, historically that cash has been a lack class. So sure as we are thinking about our portfolios that we're not too overweight cash and cash like instruments mm -hmm. and we're strategically you know uh, uh, allocated so that we can kind of meet and exceed long-term investment returns and we do think this year in particular will be a great one to complement you know we understand the reasoning to get into these cds rates are higher than we've seen in recent history right. um, but that could start to be trending downwards and good time to start thinking about complementing CD money with traditional equities and bonds. Well, just to sit with this thought a little bit longer, the pushback to that uh, argument, basically, that you're going to see cash come off the sidelines uh, that we've gotten is that you think about that $1 trillion that's come into money market funds just from March, of course, and the banking struggles that we had then, maybe that's going to be stickier than usual, that it won't be, uh, you know, this additional fuel that for equity markets and risk assets that maybe we've seen in the past. What's your thinking? Does that hold water with you at all? Yeah, you know, I do think um, we are going to see a different uh, portfolio construction in the next, you know, call it five to 10 years even, given that uh, Fed funds rate are likely not to move back to the zero bound. So you're probably looking at a Fed funds rate over time of 3%. Uh, and so in that environment, Treasury yields are probably somewhere between 3 and 4% themselves. And so um, this idea that you had to be all in in equities or all in in growth even, probably doesn't hold uh, over the next several years. So we think there's better balance between your equity and bond portfolio. And there is more room for you know cash-like instruments that are yielding uh, attractive values. And so you know, we'd say is make sure that you are thinking about uh, not only equities, but think about investment grade bonds to complement some of that money market uh, cash like instruments. So we do think there is a place for cash and CDs, uh, but we think that it's important to think about um, investment grade bonds. Not only are you locking in some of those longer, uh, better yields for a longer period, but you get the potential for appreciation it, if yields continue to move lower as well. So just great kind of alternative. Just on those investment grade bonds, just just briefly here before we go, is that perhaps an alternative to equity exposure in the MAG7? If you want to diversify more broadly away from MAG7 on the equity side, can I look at the IG bond side of the MAG7 as perhaps a, a slot on the board that, that the IG component makes up? Yeah, you know, that is a very interesting call out. And I do think that's a way to play it as well. If you're thinking about some of the growth parts of the market and want to play it from the bond perspective, um, that, you know, these are the companies that are very cash rich, yeah. uh, that will probably make good on their investment grade bonds. And, you know, they will likely not often need the bond market to uh, raise cash. So when they do, it's a great opportunity for investors. So we would say, um, you know, investment grade bonds in the Magnificent Seven or broadly in the, okay. the uh, technology space is a great way to complement your portfolio as well. Mona, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? 
look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jeff Yu is senior market strategist over at BNY Mellon. We do want to talk about what we're seeing uh, when it comes to this global bond market rally. Jeff, does it continue into 2024? Uh, well, broadly, looking at the easing cycle, um, I guess bonds will do well. You know, we're seeing an underlying flow, so people are going into duration. But has too much been priced in too soon, I would say, for the Fed? Yes. I would say for the ECB? Uh, no. So going back to your point about Madame Lagarde, about Chair Powell, um, that we're pushing her back against easing right now. I would just say these pushbacks, some are a bit more credible than others. So they're pushing back. Lagarde is desperately pushing back. We're just showing some Treasury yields at the moment across the world. We have this global bond market rally. So you say we're going to get more easing from the ECB than the market expects because right now it's pricing at 175 basis points. So what do we get and what does that do to duration in Europe? I, I don't think it's about the amount of easing. It's more about timing. So they're pushing it back about when they are easing. Uh, but I think market pricing of starting around March um, or the meeting after that, so the second or the third meeting, I think that is a credible uh, view. And then we just go from there. But sticking uh, with the ECB, you know, one other thing to look at uh, in the context of duration, uh, they announced um, more QT, you know, by unwinding the PEPP um, starting the second half of next year. Will they be in a position to actually uh, execute that? And is the market going to be ready for supply, even though they do want duration uh, right now. So quite a few moving parts at this point. Uh, so yes, there is a duration play they're heading into next year. But just to put things in context, uh, so we saw like standard three, four standard deviation moves um, throughout December. It's going to be very hard uh, to repeat that you know, heading into January. So after a correction, yes, I think flows can head back in. But then the race that you mentioned, it truly begins. And I do think the Fed is going to be losing that race in terms of who cuts first. Okay, so, so they're, they're possibly going to have to go first and go earlier. Does that say something more malevolent about the scale of recession here in the United States of America? Thankfully, you've studied the psalm rule. Uh, I haven't got the depth of, of, of quant knowledge. Jeffrey, on that. just for us, could you quiz Manus yeah. on it? Because that would be a lot of fun. No, I'm just well, kidding. Well, <laughs> actually, it indicates when global recessions. Yes, it up. does. Um, look, Jeff, you're, you're omniscient in, the, in this regard. Just run us through for our viewers. What is the psalm rule? What does it matter? And where is the worst shirt globally recession? wise. 
Um, so looking at the strict definition, the three-month moving average of the U3 unemployment rate in the US rises by 0.5 percentage points or more relative to the low during the last 12 months, right? So you know, that's explicit definition there. Uh, so applying it to Europe, you know, which is you know, what we're really focused on right now, oddly enough, UK and Sweden really are not doing uh, too well in that respect. The UK um, quite poorly, but just to put things into context, uh, so this rule can also be satisfied if the prior employment levels or the prior unemployment rate was far too low. So if the labour market was excessively tight, which in yeah. fairness there had been in certain <clears throat> European economies, then you could have that uh, push up them as well. Um, but overall, going back to the hard landing, soft landing push, I think the US definitely in the soft landing camp, but for Europe is a bit mixed and match right now. Overall, I think we need to focus on the fiscal side in Europe. Can Germany get past um, this uh, constitutional wrangle with regards to the budget? Because what you don't want is fiscal contraction uh, into a cyclical downturn. But that, to be honest, is what uh, Germany is looking at right now, and they really need to resolve it. All right, I hope you guys wrote all that down because there is going to be a quiz. I've got, the, I've, got, I've got the print out here with, look, with yellow highlights on it. So, you know, don't, don't say that I don't Claudia read the notes. We're on the phone right now. Later as we in the show, we'll all quiz each other. But, uh, Jeff, let's stay in Europe. Uh, I want to go back to what you said about basically the ECB's credibility because obviously the market is pushing rate cuts. And just today, I thought it was interesting, you had uh, Governing Council member Robert Holzman coming out and saying rate cuts in 2024. They aren't guaranteed. Of course, he's one of the most... Um, most hawkish members there, but uh, still this pushback uh, that you're seeing from the ECB, it's just not landing. What does that say about the ECB's credibility here? Uh, well, if inflation data keeps on surprising to the downside, which it really uh, has been you know, for the last two or three prints, uh, uh, then your credibility is damaged. We saw it on the way up, right? Transitory, transitory, transitory all the time, and it turns out it wasn't transitory. So that's when you lose credibility. So the last thing central bankers anywhere right now want is to have lost some credibility on the way up, and you lose it on the way down as well. So this is where they need to be really tuned to uh, right now. So I just question, you know, what is euro dollar doing up here? Yes, it is a Fed story, but can you justify having a very strong euro right now with the export environment very weak. You mentioned China being uh, quite weak as well. And also we've seen a downturn in the labor market as well. You look at job openings in France and Germany, they finally started to soften heading into December. So that services element in Europe, which Madame Lagarde said had been holding European wages up, that seems to be coming off as well. Look at the PMIs. So again, it's really difficult to justify based on the data, the hawkish rhetoric at this point. All right, Jeff. So I'm going to go into Japan, Bank of Japan, right? We had some comments uh, from the governor saying that uh, that the BFJ can reach a judgment on policy before complete wage figures from small and medium-sized figures come out. He did an interview with NHK. So how are you thinking about Japan, this policy of negative rates that has been in existence for so long? Do we start to see some kind of shift in 2024? Can they yes, actually they do it? Yes, um, they will they'll absolutely have to shift. And the yen is going to be very much on part of that equation. Uh, we do see a material drop in dollar yen. So the yen is going to be one of the best performing currencies um, heading into uh, next year. Uh, and also, let's just go back to what they're actually doing. So leaving the rhetoric aside, they're tweaking their bond purchases as well, um, leaving more scope and for yields to go higher. So it is happening. They will do it at their own pace, judge it on data, judge it on wages, as you mentioned. Um, but net net, they know that importing inflation via a weaker yen, that doesn't work anymore. It is a problem. And it is going to be one of the tweaks, uh, well, the, the, the major shifts heading um, into next year. Uh, 
dollar. And to be frank, Asia needs it as well. So on top of that, if the yen is allowed to strengthen, I think it will allow a lot of other central banks in Asia to let their currencies um, move a bit more uh, as well, uh, especially on the strengthening side, especially those still with a bit more inflation to worry about. But net net, that's going to be the seminal story in APAC, of course, on top of whatever China does with respect to growth. The two ors are going to define what happens to the dollar recession and rates. Your call is a soft landing uh, and the market has 150, 160 basis points of rates cuts. The question I have for you then is soft landing in the United States of America. Is that short the dollar, sell the dollar on the rates uh, and a risk on narrative? Does that define a lower dollar 2024? So on a trade-weighted basis, dollars absolutely peak, right? But but pick your dollar shorts carefully, and there's still plenty of opportunities for dollar long. So uh, like euro dollar, I think should be heading back to parity. You know, given what I've just said about ECB easing timing uh, cuts, and, and the Fed's going to be later than that. So I certainly would not be short the dollar on the euro leg. Dollar versus Asia, I just mentioned, you know, probably the dollar's going to soften a bit as well. Also on a trade-weighted basis, one of the two most important trading uh, partners for the U.S. closer to home, Canada and Mexico. Those are going to be very, very interesting pairs as well. And I do think Latin American carry trades, they've run their course. Bank of Mexico are going to start easing rates. So the dollar can pretty much hold its own, maybe against Canadian dollar and the Mexican peso. And that is going to be material for U.S. financial conditions as well, especially for the exporters. Jeff, you're a rock star. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And Happy Always New Year. Fun. Jeff Yu of BNY Mellon joining us. Ellen Wald, she follows the energy markets, has for a long time. She's senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and author of Saudi Inc. Ellen, great to have you back here on Bloomberg. So how are you kind of adding up some of the tensions that are happening in the Middle East? We're talking about stockpiles here in the United States. What does it mean for the energy markets? One of the important things, at least, that um, I'm taking in is uh, to kind of pull back and look at the larger um, Middle East geopolitical picture here. And if you uh, kind of step back, you'll notice that there have been apparently 103 separate attacks on U.S. troops across the Middle East, even in places where uh, at least I wasn't aware we even had any troops. And that's a very large number. And that's been since uh, since I think October 17th. And uh, to me, that says that um, things are kind of bubbling under the surface, potentially escalating. Uh, and then uh, on top of that, you've got Iranian drone attacks on uh, chemical tankers in the Indian Ocean. And you've got this Red Sea situation, which is just getting more and more tense by the day. Uh, like you said, you've got half of all container shipping is avoiding the Red Sea. Uh, and then when you look at the oil situation and the oil product situation on top of that, uh, I think there is a real risk for Europe here. Not that they won't get the products and mm -hmm. the crude oil they need, but since they're no longer buying from Russia, um, they're basically either importing from the Middle East. So now that uh, a lot of that's got to go around. Africa, or they're importing products, say, that are made maybe in India from Russian oil, that's also got to go uh, either through the Suez Canal or around Africa now. So we're talking about longer transport times, uh, higher costs, higher insurance costs, and just a general uh, higher risk. And uh, to me, like you said, that sends uh, the idea of inflated prices Though, of course, we've got to balance that with these higher stockpiles. Well, let's just uh, focus in on, on the Red Sea. We have this coalition uh, and a hefty coalition of defense trying to help uh, shippers return there. You flag a concern about 
to what extent will this coalition actually be prepared to protect the maritime fleets going in there? Because the last thing the coalition of the West wants is a deep escalation. So you you dite the teeth of this coalition of protection. Exactly. I think that the fact that it's been assembled does not necessarily mean that it's going to do anything. I think there's been a lot of hype about uh, kind of the coming together of this coalition. Uh, but to me, that says too little, too late. Uh, where was this coalition last month uh, when when container ships and tankers were being attacked? And uh, it doesn't seem, you know, it's, it's one thing for the Houthis to say, OK, we're going to attack Israeli linked ships. Now they're just basically attacking anyone. Uh, a tanker that was going going uh, from Pakistan to Saudi Arabia was was recently attacked uh, and had no links to Israel or, or anyone else. So uh, to me, this says that they're going to continue to be emboldened. They're going to continue to step up these attacks and uh, at defensive positions. We've got U.S. destroyers in the Red Sea trying to basically intercept these attacks as they're happening. Um, That may not be enough. In fact, it's looking like it's not enough for most of the shipping industry. Ellen, you lay lay a very febrile image in my mind in terms of what's actually going on. And I think we're so physically far away from it. Sometimes we don't really understand the level of risk. Why such a phlegmatic response from the energy markets in that case? Is it just thin volumes, as, as Carol said? Or, or, or is it, nah, this will pass. We've seen these flashes in the pan before. Uh, we don't need to worry that much. Why such phlegmatic response in the energy market? That's a really great question. And I think it's a combination of um, the... Um, high production levels from the United States. There's a sense that this, you know, 13 plus million barrel a day production is just going to offset risk, uh, which I think is a bit uh, a bit of a, an oversight. Then you've got um, you've got the fact that nothing has happened before. Uh, and then you've got the fact that I think it's in the interests of the Biden administration to avoid a larger conflagration at all costs. Uh, but on the other hand, they may not be able to do this. And the risk of a conflict, while still low, is not zero at this point. And uh, I do believe mm. that that number is getting higher the longer that these attacks on international shipping are allowed to go on. Well, Ellen, given that that is a non-zero risk in your view, I mean, you think about the uh, war premium, to borrow a phrase from Manus, that's priced into oil right now. Should there be more of a premium priced in? I do think that there should be, particularly as we go on uh, in the year. We're at a period now of generally uh, seasonally low demand. But as we head into, say, April, May, uh, when when things pick up, I do think that that premium, uh, unless if this conflict has not been resolved by then, uh, you know, that premium should definitely be much higher, particularly if OPEC Plus is going to continue to hold barrels off the market. How much higher, Ellen? Give us a quote. That's that's a good question. I don't like to, to predict oil prices, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's if it's more than several dollars a barrel. Uh, I do think that it's that this risk is being underestimated now. Uh, and I think that the the fact that that U.S. supply and the fact that we know OPEC is holding so much oil off the market is kind of negating uh, that geopolitical risk at the moment. Above 80. <laughs> She's pushing. Um, I'm not going to say no. All right. Wow. That would be a very different trade than what it we're It changes right the now. dynamics for the White House as well in terms of refilling the SPO, I can tell you that, and the price cap. 
Ellen Wald, thank you so much of the Atlantic Council. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.